0: As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour with stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, mind, body, spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called Extremely Frightening and Upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and
1: Mick Garrison. Welcome once again to the fun size episode of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And my producer, Joe Russo, is here to ask your question. So, Joe, how are you? I'm I'm good, Mick. I have a
2: movie that started shooting today.
1: This is so great. And uh, congratulations. You wrote the script with your partner, Chris Lamont, and directed by Nightmare Cinema director Alejandro Brugués. So congratulations. I think it just started shooting today.
2: Yeah, like two hours ago. Uh-
1: <laughs> Amazing. Congrats.
2: Yeah. No, I, I know. I know we teased it a couple of weeks back when I said I had one of our post former postmodem guests uh, cracking the whip. Uh, so now they know it's Alejandro Breguiz. Uh, it's a good team. Couldn't be happier to be working with him again. He, uh, he and I, um, are, are very simpatico and, uh, you know, I would say like nine times out of 10, we usually feel the same way about a movie. So I, I feel like it's in really good hands.
1: Well, in Alejandro's hands, it is in good hands. I guarantee you.
2: Me too. Uh, shall we do some questions? Let's dive in. All right. Greg asks, as a California native, how do you think growing up in California shaped you as a filmmaker?
1: You know, it must have in some ways, but I don't know how, because no one in my family was in the entertainment business or in film or television. Uh, I had no access to people who were you know, I, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and just went to schools in the valley. There there were no celebrity kids in the schools I went to. Um, you know, it was a very blue collar um, life that I led as a child. So I never really connected with Hollywood other than loving movies, books, and television. So it may have had an effect just because it's in the air and uh, in the business, but. You know, my father worked at an aerodynamics company and um, as a cab driver and all that stuff. So I wasn't really exposed to it. So, But just being here certainly gave me access to it once I started to to have some success at that. And as a screenwriter, getting access to agents and producers and people like that, um, that would have been more difficult had I grown up in Boise or something.
2: Do you think though uh, the a- actually living in California has shaped maybe your perspective on stories and the type of storytelling, maybe sociopolitically anything anything like that? Though I think I think mean, maybe that's what Greg was maybe reaching at more so than access.
1: Well, it it did in the stories I've told as I got into the industry. Um, it definitely affected that my books i kind of own the sub-genre of hollywood horror you know uh horror stories that are based within the hollywood community and and people within it and the monstrous things they're capable of doing that sort of thing being exposed to that but it's like you write about what you know and you write about the business that you know john grisham was a lawyer who became a huge best-selling author of legal thrillers um And that's the sort of thing. So, yes, I find myself surrounded by by like minded people politically and socially. I'm very much a political and social liberal. Uh, I make no bones about that. Would that have been my point of view growing up somewhere else? I kind of think so, because those roots were planted way back in in high school and college you know i demonstrated against the vietnam war and and went to love ins and and so uh, all of those things kind of create who i am now and and it continues to evolve and and yes i've lived in los angeles pretty much all of my life so it has to have had an effect just because of the bubble in which I live. And I do realize that it is a bubble that I try and break out of a lot through travel and just through other relationships outside of the industry.
2: Well, I think we can definitely say that, yes, California has shaped you as a filmmaker. (laughs) Uh,
1: It has, certainly.
2: McMuffin Guy wants to know, (laughs) what was your favorite movie theater experience? Can you think of a singular movie theater experience that, that was above all others?
1: well i talked about going to the drive-in with my family to see psycho that was certainly one of them it wasn't in a theater it was outside but probably on opening day of the exorcist at the cinerama theater in san diego there was a line outside this is 1974 and uh everybody outside in the line was nervous and chatty and and going inside it was packed and the trailers played and everybody was buzzing and all and then as soon as the movie started it got very quiet and then anything even remotely amusing that someone said or did got a huge laugh because people were so nervous and anticipatory and the feeling within that theater i've never felt this again. Um, since that first time I saw the exorcist, it was so contagious. The fear and the tension was ratcheted at such a high level that by the time they go back, the camera creeps in on the bedroom door for Reagan's bedroom before they go in there and everything's flying around. I go, why am I here? Why am I here? This is terrifying. And it was an amazing experience. So that and. And seeing Psycho with my family at the drive-in theater uh, in 1961 was, those are probably the two most memorable.
2: I want to take a quick tributary on that Exorcist story for a second. I, I'm just curious. I don't know, because I don't. we've never talked about this much. I know your current kind of religious stance, but when you grew up, did you have any kind of religion that would have influenced your screening of the exorcist that that you came in with?
1: No, there was no deep-rooted Catholicism in my blood. Um, And uh, although both of my parents were brought up within their religion, my father was Greek Orthodox and my mother was raised a Methodist, and I was baptized a Presbyterian, we went to church a few times, but it was not a serious part of my growing up.
2: Well, there you go that was that was that answers the question uh my favorite <laughs> if, if anyone cares my favorite uh experience we all was, i i saw the lord of the ring trilogy the night that return of the king came out they showed uh all three movies in a row um, nine
1: hours of
2: hobbits oh my gosh i've never done anything like that Uh, up until that point and i've only done something like that once since which which was when i saw all the star wars uh right before force awakens came out but yeah no the the, i just those three lord of the rings movies are so perfect and peter jackson did such a good job like it was just so satisfying it was a really satisfying day it was freshman year of college some of my best film buddies and i you know I, i i have very fond memories of that screening
1: you're right at that age of 18 or 19 and uh, you yep. yep. ready for
2: it. Totally, totally shapes me. But uh, but next question, Ryan wants to know, what's the story behind the Creature from the Black Lagoon pinball machine in the headquarters of Nice Guy Productions?
1: Ah, I'm looking at it right now. Um, when I was making The Stand, most of our time was spent in Utah and our headquarters was in Salt Lake City and our short weekends, and they were very short because the requirements of the shoot were so tremendous. Um, one of the things that we would do, my wife Cynthia and I would go to an arcade in, you know, a couple of blocks away from where we were staying, in the apartment we were staying in. And one of the games we played most there was the Creature from the Black Lagoon. And what fun that is the perfect game i love it uh and so as a surprise cynthia bought me that pinball game and and hid it in the dining room of our house behind a curtain and made me promise not to take a peek for several days before christmas came and uh so ever since it has been in my home or in my office once i built the office next door to the house uh, it has been a mainstay there. And I still play it almost every day. You
0: know, oh, that's whenever, cool.
1: Whenever my seat gets numb from writing or uh, podcasting, I'll stand up and play a couple of games
2: of Creature. That's awesome. That's awesome. It, and it is in pristine condition, too. Uh, it is. So it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty, that's a pretty special gift. Uh, Stuart asks, Nick and Joe, when the first seeds of a story idea pop into your heads, do you reach for a pen and paper or the keyboard? What do you do, Mick, when you first get an idea for a, a movie or a, a novella or what have you?
1: I, I never write by hand. I always type. And usually when I get an idea, um, it's just an idea. And I don't start writing notes or, or give a general kind of story idea. Um, if I'm hooked by an idea, I will sit down and page one, it starts, whether it's a script or a novel or a short story. Um, I just sit down and write it from beginning to end that type it from beginning to end. Right.
2: Right. Not (laughs) handwriting, Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm of, I'm of an interesting mindset with ideas, you know, when they're in their nascent stage, I don't write them down. I don't write them down because I feel like if they can stay with me for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, then they're probably an idea that's worth having. Uh, sometimes ideas, I feel like they're fleeting. They come and go. It's like, oh, that's interesting. And then it kind of fades away because it's not really something you're terribly excited about. So I kind of, I, I don't know, I, I, I almost chill the idea uh, before I really dig into it because I want to make sure that it's something that I'm really excited about before I put in the work, so to speak. Yeah.
1: I agree with you completely. The idea will simmer for a while. And if it stays, then I'll sit down and start writing it. If it doesn't, bye-bye. You know, if if it has flown the coop, just like when I dream, I never remember dreaming. As soon as I wake up, it's like smoke. It disappears upon wakefulness. So I, I may dream a great idea. And if it sticks with me, Uh, like the short story chocolate came out of a dream it stuck with me because uh, when I woke up it was still there and I was still feeling on the verge of panic having committed a murder myself in in that dream Um, but uh, yeah in general um, I only start writing when I'm on page one and then just power into it
2: all right so Zed asks Is it too soon to write a COVID horror story that's also a comedy?
1: I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, comedy is famously based on tragedy anyway, uh, is the old saw. Um, You know, I I think it depends on how you handle it. You you don't want to make it too personal to people who've had that experience. So uh, the wounds are still so open but I certainly don't think any subject is taboo if you handle it uh, in an intelligent and sensitive way. And it can be insensitive as well, intentionally. Uh, Satire is often based upon the the insensitivity, uh, the ludicrousness of the insensitivity toward tragic events.
2: Yeah, I think it all depends on the point of view of the story um you know if you have an interesting point of view and you have something interesting to say i think people will get excited about it and that's it's as simple as that agreed chris asks in the stand at the beginning of part three it seems some new characters were introduced very quickly were there any deleted scenes in that part of the miniseries
1: yeah, people ask about that, even though it seems to start with a jump cut where everybody is in the water plant and and there are people there in, in, including a dying character who, by the way, was played by our second AD um, huh. who has the steam coming off of his head. Uh, it was written that way. We just are in the middle of what's taking place uh, as the world is dying. And so it was intentional, hopefully not too abrupt, but it was supposed to be finding a scene happening in the middle of it, rather than building up to it and introducing it and all of that. And hopefully it's as effective. Um, it It was removing the chaff and it was how King had written it. And we just committed to
2: that. There you go. Mike asks, what do you think would be the most difficult H.P. Lovecraft story to adapt?
1: There's not an easy one.
2: You That's know, true.
1: <laughs> they are all so much more esoteric than any of the films that have been made. I mean, we go back to um, Roger Corman and and uh, uh, trying to do it. And, and everyone has made them much more grounded than the lovecraft stories themselves Mm -hmm. i think uh, stuart gordon and richard stanley have done the best adaptations but even those color out of space and reanimator and from beyond and dagon even those ground them more with characters that are identifiable and in a society that is more recognizable to us the the wonderful lovecraft stories are really woven pastiches of language, of words and and imagery that should be read and can be translated, but that translation brings as much of the filmmaker's personality into play as it does in Lovecraft's. Whereas Stephen King, you can adapt Stephen King and lose the filmmaker's personality into the story that King has written because it's so grounded. And even with Clive Barker, who goes into a more surreal world of, of horror, um, Lovecraft, the raison d'etre is, is the horror itself and, and the wild flights of imagination.
2: Yeah, I mean, the 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 challenge really is like you think about Guillermo trying to do at at the, uh, the mountains of Badness. Yeah, uh and I think he had Tom Cruise attached. Like if you can't get a Guillermo del Toro movie with Tom Cruise, you know, but the problem is this, they're big, they're expensive. Uh they're R-rated, you know. these stories are
1: esoteric. I don't know. I I can't see universal or or sony or warner brothers making a truly authentic hp lovecraft movie
2: they're 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 really challenging and and if someone can crack it boy that that you know the fans will come
1: yeah uh, i mean obviously richard did yeah. it with the color out of space beautifully
2: absolutely absolutely uh josh wants to know Nick and Joe, what directors were the most influential on your choice to go into filmmaking?
1: It's interesting because I started writing before I started directing and attained some success doing that that led to my ability to get a job directing. Um, So in the earlier days, I was really influenced more by writers and more book writers than screenwriters. You know, Ray Bradbury was a huge influence. Raymond Chandler was a big influence. Richard Matheson was a big influence. And then later on, Stephen King became a big influence as far as writing goes. But by the time I was screenwriting and thinking about the possibility of directing, there were the De Palmas and the Steven Spielbergs and the George Lucases, that's that's when I came of age. Um, And so they were huge influences. And other than De Palma, I was so lucky to be able to, well, I was a receptionist for George Lucas and Star Wars, but to actually write and direct for and with Steven Spielberg. Um, And he was a tremendous influence, but also those Hammer films, you know, Freddie Francis and, and the, the people from the Hammer canon were very influential as well. Um, and all the way back to Jack Pierce and Alfred Hitchcock, you know, Jack, well, not Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce was the makeup artist who created all the wonderful universal horrors. Right. But, um, but uh, you know, directors um, like James Whale, you know, the Frankenstein movies that James Whale directed are mm-hmm. as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. And there are elements of of that filmmaking that can still seem contemporary today. And they laid the groundwork for what horror has, cinematic horror has become over the years. So those were my biggest influences. And then later on, learning about David Cronenberg and, and uh, John Dahl and people who do just really interesting, idiosyncratic,
2: personal, films i um for me i mean as a kid you know i was a spielberg kid growing up through and through uh all, all of the movies that he directed and all the ones that he produced you know um so so i would say early on certainly he lured me into the magic of cinema but i mean you know as i as i grew up obviously i i started watching more and more and more but i think the for me the one that, the movie that like flipped the switch, which was oddly right before that Lord of the Rings screening, was seeing uh, Kill Bill during college. Um, oh wow! That, that movie, I just the the rules that Quentin broke with that that movie, uh, I think made me realize just how much of a heavy hand can be behind the camera. Um and yeah. and and that and that just that kind of that turned the light on for me. Uh, so I'll 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 say Quentin Tarantino.
1: Yeah, well, those the great thing about being a creator is that you're constantly being exposed to new voices in filmmaking, in in writing, in all these different uh, all the arts. And yeah, Quentin is definitely an inspiration. Guillermo is an inspiration. Claire yep. Barker is an inspiration, and. And, you know, the Cohen brothers are an inspiration. I, I learn something from the people I admire all the time. And uh, I always hope to be in a state of evolution for the rest of my life.
2: I, I agree. That's why we're always constantly, you know, I think Guillermo said it at a, uh, he didn't say it on our podcast. I wish he had, but he said it at a, uh, a speech that he gave at the Academy. Um, and he basically said, going to the cinema is like going to church. You know, yeah. we go every week, uh, hoping to hear something that inspires us. We go, to, we go to find a movie every week. We sit through a movie, hoping to find that one that really, you know, resonates. And and I think, you know, if you if you want to continue to get better, like you said, you have to keep watching and keep getting inspired. Um,
1: you either love movies or you don't, and a lot of people run out of love for for movies, their their passion ebbs and yeah
2: yeah i mean kevin smith Smith talked about that on the podcast last week uh yeah yeah and i i thought that was a really great point was he he brought up the fact that you love movies he loves movies and that's something that's kept both of your careers going for as long as they have been
1: Uh, yeah a lot of people blame the movies for losing their enthusiasm and you know, movies evolve, they're always going to be changing. And yeah, a lot of them suck. And a lot of them are great, Uh, but you, you maintain that passion. And that was something I heard Joe Dante say years ago was uh, you know, somebody was complaining about how, how bad movies had gotten. And, and he said, well, you either love movies or you don't. And, and that always stuck with me.
2: Yeah. He's right. Joe's a smart guy. Uh, Dead ringer asks, If you could make a movie with anyone in film history, who would you choose and why?
1: I wonder if that's meant as a filmmaker or an actor or what. You know,
2: I wondered that, too. I I, I mean, let's let's say both one or the other.
1: I would love to work with David Cronenberg. I've had him work for me as an actor a couple of times. Um, I'd love to work with Alfred Hitchcock. Writing for Alfred Hitchcock would have been amazing.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, directing Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart, oh, two, yeah. two of the greatest actors in American cinema history. But I'm also lucky enough that I've gotten to work with so many other people who have inspired me. So, um you know, I, I'm i better at appreciating what I've been able to do than grieving what I wasn't.
2: I think uh, that's an interesting transition into our final question for the day. Oh, boy. Yeah. Huh. Mitchell asks, which unmade screenplay of yours do you feel is the biggest missed opportunity?
1: Well, all of them, of course. <laughs> of
2: course yes, of course. Of course. But, but is there is there one that stands head, head and shoulders above that you wish... Well, would have gotten made.
1: There are a couple of different points of view. There was an assignment. I adapted Stephen King and Peter Straub's uh, "The Talisman" into a four-hour miniseries that I was going to direct. That Spielberg wow. was producing. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite things I've ever written. It came out great. Everybody loved it, but it was for ABC at a time when they they were in the bottom of the rating seller and there's just no way they could have afforded to make it. And they keep trying to make it as movies and now it's gonna be a TV series for HBO or something, I don't know, but that, was something I wished I could have done. I was so happy with that script and everyone involved with it was, but ABC just said, you know, with Stephen King, Peter Straub, Steven Spielberg and and you to a much lesser extent. Um we just can't even afford the above the line. Yeah. So that was one and you never give up because one that I wrote 30 years ago I, that I think, you know, it was the best idea for a screenplay, an original screenplay I'd ever had. I just recently completely revamped it and rewrote it. And I just optioned it to a, a film production company. And we are moving forward with uh, with taking that to, to the world of feature films. So that is called Jimmy Miracle. And uh, it was something that I never never forgotten. For a while I thought, you know, if I can't do it as a movie, maybe I'll write it as a novel. But um, I came up with some ideas to make it much more contemporary, although it takes place in 1936. And Jimmy lives. So we'll yeah, see I mean,
2: happens. I mean, it's it's a testament to writing things on spec because you yep. you a good spec will never die, an assignment can die. Right, yeah. an assignment oh, and, can get caught in development hell with Yeah, uh, but, but a good a good spec uh, can can live forever. So, uh, and that that I think is a tribute miracle. Um, so, <laughs> 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 uh, so Mick, thank you for another wonderful AMA, and thanks to our fans for all these great questions.
1: Thank you, producer Joe,
2: and our fans can ask the questions by going to. Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram or sending me the questions at Joe Russo tweets or Joe Russo Graham on Instagram.
1: All right. Thanks, Joe. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.